Okay, well, uh, this is episode 36 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Okay, here, here. Here's, here's, a, here's a starting question. We'll say it came from a listener, even though I don't know if those exist anymore. But, uh, <laughs> mm, yes. Uh, in your honest, you know, and no judgment where it's just a Ben and Clayton, you know, confessional time. What would you say for you personally is like the, I don't want to say boring, that's not the right word, but like the, and this is not an underhanded way for it to get you to say what you were saying yes, earlier. It no, it's not. No, it's not. Unless the answers are the same, then I guess uh-huh. it is. But what would you say is maybe the, the hardest part of the Bible for like you personally to like really engage with? As you're reading it. Does that make sense? Yes, like we went through what? some of it this week. So the hardest part for me to engage with is not what we talked about before off air. It's the hardest part for me to engage with is when there are detailed construction or measurements oh. being described. Okay. And so, man, my, I mean, I struggle for my eyes not to glaze over when I'm reading in Exodus. Yeah, yeah. Construction. I mean, it's oh, good. Yeah. And I recognize how important it and is. And we got more of that in Ezekiel. And then this, this week, week yeah. and this reading the Ezekiel passages, and I'm reading them and I'm like, I, I know that there are almost certainly insights that I don't get. Uh-huh. But part of this is I have no ability to picture things when I read them. Yes. So I'm reading measurements and I'm just reading a series of numbers and directions. <laughs> and it's hard because it's a lot of space. And yeah. so the temptation to skip it is strong. I don't, but I'm very tempted to. And I don't skip it because I don't. I know that I don't actually have to understand what I'm reading or feel like I'm gaining from it for the Lord to use it in my heart. But at the same time, my word, I have a hard time. And then some of the more obscure parts of prophecy I have a tough time with. Some of the apocalyptic stuff, um, I can find those discussions interesting. But I think the problem for me is all of the ways that people feel so strongly about specific interpretations of them mm-hmm. make me wary. Mm-hmm. How about you? Oh, I love the whole thing. Uh-huh. No, it's interesting. I feel like like talking about the measurement and the architectural, so to speak, architectural passages, it's kind of an opposite feeling. I, like I, I know that and I'm glad because I actually really enjoy those. <laughs> I will say that the at this point in my life and in my my discipleship, the only chapter that I will skip or skim over is the one, I think it might be number seven, the early one in numbers where it's like, and the chieftain brought forth eight golden bulls, seven swans, <laughs> so like goes down this thing. But then it's the same it's, offering uh-huh. from all 12 of the tribal leaders repeated in detail. And it's just like, I'm just not going to read it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you can't make me. So Lisa Lisa listens to the, the Bible in the year. And and during that section, she she had never realized yeah, before just that they repeated exactly. And it's only one chapter. you know. So and I mean, she goes, why? Why? Why wouldn't it just say all of all them brought, brought the this? same thing. Yeah. Why indeed? You, dear listeners, can write in to tell us what your most boring parts of the Bible are. Well, because I will say there's definitely other parts that used to be boring. As I have learned more and read the Bible over and over again, like they have, they have, I can see them in a new light now. Yes. Like the genealogies, I would say, are a mm-hmm. big, uh, a good example of that. Or just the laws, you know, in Deuteronomy especially. Um, I mean, those are some of my favorite mm-hmm. things to read now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because... It, of just the, I think the shift. 
All right, so we have a quite a few readings here. We are wrapping up Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Uh, we're starting Ezra. We're we're ending Jeremiah. I think those are the last verses in Jeremiah, aren't yes. they? Well, that doesn't mean we're necessarily done with Jeremiah because he's not written uh, chronologically. Quite a bit of Ezekiel and finishing that out and then going through the middle section of Daniel. So first... The beginning of Ezra. Yeah, in the beginning of Ezra. So uh, thinking about Kings, since we're finally at the end of it, you know, so our verses that we're reading, why does Kings end this way? Like, why is this, these the final sentences that the author closes the book with? The suggestion I would have as to why these are the end uh, the end verses of the Book of Kings are because it's a positive, it's an uplift, it's a it's a hopeful thing, but it's also tempered, and so Jehoiachin, who is the rightful king, is released from prison, and that's an interesting historical tidbit. Um, but the he's treated well. He's not sent home though, right? He's kept by the king of Babylon. And so I think it's a, Kings has been a, a brutal book as far as looking at why things, why the people of God have found themselves in exile. But we have this positive turn at the end of, of hope. King is released from prison. And that would be my immediate thought. What do you think? I did not read it as a positive thing. Hmm. I think because he, <clears throat> he stayed in captivity and he was like this little like pet monarch you know, for mm-hmm. the Babylonian king, that it struck me more as just saying, like, especially, and I mean, the ancient, you know, originally these scrolls didn't necessarily have the names that we ascribe to them now. You right. know, so it's unclear if, you know, an ancient Judean would have referred to this story as kings. But, like, that's obviously the emphasis, you know, is on the, the monarchy and, and their failings, you know, especially in kings, mostly their failings. And so I think I read it more as, like, this, this final you know humiliation humiliation and failure of like and this is where it ends <laughs> you know judas king is not where he should be eating food he shouldn't be eating that's true you know uh and just kind of stuck in exile i hear that the the thing that's hard is so the, there's tensions here because this is who the the judahites the the people of god saw as their um, especially the ones in exile saw as the true king Right. So those that are in exile see Jehoiachin as as the king. Right. And his release from captivity, I think, would have been seen by them as a gift and a symbolic one. He's now going to be able to visit his people in exile. He's going to be able to they're going to have access to him in a way that they didn't before. Um, He's being given a seat of honor among Babylon, who has been the the tool of God and and has conquered in the way that God has called them to do um again it's not it's not the whole it's not he's he's not returning home with all of his exiled people right but but his station has improved but i think you're right that that when i said it's tempered it's because it's it's not the way it's supposed to be like Mm -hmm. if he's the king he's still in exile even released it's like being put into a nicer prison right and not uh because he doesn't i mean this is it for him he's He's off the historical stage after this. So as far as we know, he lived out the rest of his life in the Babylonian court and died at some point. Yes, I think that yeah. is what we do know and there's from the no... historical record. Did you have anything for First Chronicles? No. All right. <laughs> Neither did I. 
Alright, so we also get to the last, the very last sentences of 2nd Chronicles, which, of course, in the original 1st and 2nd Chronicles were a single scroll, or a single mm -hmm. story, I should say. Uh, why does, why is this how the authors of Chronicles end Chronicles? And so Kings ends with this description of King Jehoiakim being a captive little pet monarch in the Babylonian court, whereas 2nd Chronicles ends with the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah mm -hmm. and the decree, or at least the first section of the decree, because it kind of cuts off in the middle of Cyrus, the Persian emperor, for the people to yeah. go back to Judah and, and start to rebuild the temple. So it's interesting to me that, that Chronicles and Ezra are right next to each other because the end of Chronicles is basically the beginning of Ezra. Not originally, but yes. I don't think I knew that. Well, in the Jewish order, and Chronicles comes last. Oh, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah, sorry. Of course. In our, I thought you were saying that Ezra no, no, had no, a no, different sorry, beginning. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> I was like, woo! <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just meant in the Jewish order, and yes, you're Chronicles right. is last. Yeah. You're right. And so, the, I mean, what we have in Chronicles is hope for the future, mm -hmm. right? And that's the whole thing, is the, the coming hope and reasons for the hope. And that's what's happening here. Um, we, we disagreed a little bit over what the ending of second Kings meant. I imagine we're going to agree what the ending with second Chronicles means is that this is a, a, a hope and a promise that the exile is ending. Mm -hmm. And so the exile took forever for us to get to, it lasts about 40 years, which is interesting in and of itself. And then we have this release from exile at the end of Chronicles. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's kind of a, uh, uh, unequivocally, you know, hopeful, restorative ending i think for the book of chronicles yeah well and part of why i just wanted to dwell a little bit on just the endings of these two stories is just once again you know they in large part they're they're recounting the same history but they're doing it you know their their aims are are uh complementary but distinct you know yes. just as they're going through all these different stories and so i think just reflecting on those larger themes it kind of made sense you know the king's ends and the king is still in exile buddy buddy with the, the evil tyrant and then Chronicles ends, you know, with this, with not, not a mention of the Judahite king, which is interesting. <laughs> and, uh, with the, the Persian, uh, the Persian emperor sending the people back. Historically, we know that from the fall of Jerusalem to the letter from Cyrus is 40 years. Oh. And that's fascinating because, there is a connection in that to the wilderness, I think, the wilderness wanderings. When they leave a time of, of slavery in Egypt, mm -hmm. but then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Like they've left a bad, they're in another bad on their way to a good. And it's things had gotten so rotten in Judah, the, the exile is seen, I think, I think Yahweh is telling us that the exile is something like the wilderness wanderings. That's a period of time God allows his people to go through. And then the return from exile is seen as like the re-entry into the promised land. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, originally a single book, book. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're describing just the, the history of what it looked like for, the, for them to start returning. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I know we're not doing summaries, and so I just jumped right into no, my no, I just was Well, I just figured we'd just throw it out just as at least a single sentence <laughs> should we address the change in format that we've oh, done oh yeah we probably should have said that at the beginning let's say it now they don't care yes they do <laughs> we've talked about a change in format for the podcast moving forward instead of one of us giving a summary and then going through the the bits that we want to discuss and having one of us kind of be the answer person and one of us be the question person 
we're going to just both bring our our questions and talk about things. One weakness of that that I'm realizing now is we do need to probably give some kind of summary of the readings just so that if a listener has not actually done the reading yet, they'll know what we are talking about. And so many ones like what we just did for each book, I think is probably fine. And so... Well, and I, I think part of the reasoning behind it was one that I was just getting bored with the other way. And so it's time <laughs> to do something new. <laughs> and two, we are, get, we are drawing close to the New Testament, which I think most of us are much more familiar with mm-hmm. than a lot of what we have been reading. And so I don't know the, the way that we, the, the structure of the, the program previously, I think wouldn't have been as useful for the New Testament. I think it was going to get tiresome. Mm-hmm. And so taking a, a kind of a looser approach, I think is going to be better. And we just decided to go ahead and do it before we actually got to the New Testament. Yeah, so, I think that's fine. Yeah, that's what's happening. So anyway, so that's Ezra and Nehemiah. They're describing the return of the people, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, kind of putting Judean society back together again. Yes. Sort of. I have some thoughts. I, I don't... Do you think that Ezra is supposed to be a sympathetic character? Oh. Because I'm actually beginning to be convinced that I don't think Ezra is necessarily... I don't want to... Well, there aren't good guys and bad guys in the Bible, but I don't think that Ezra... I don't I don't know if he's meant to be read as an unalloyed good guy. Well, no. Almost none of the good guys in the Bible are meant to be well, sure. read that way. But what but are you thinking about? But even less so. <laughs> what are you thinking about specifically? Well, we'll get there. You can go first. I went first for Kings of Chronicles, so you can All go right. first for Ezra. So, I mean, one of the things that stands out as you're reading the beginning of Ezra is the the sadness of the older people that saw the original temple. Uh-huh. And then they see the new foundation being laid. Yeah. And they weep. And at the same time, those that are younger that did not see the original temple are shouting for joy. And it's sad weeping, right? It's not happy. Yes, happy weeping. it's not happy weeping. So it's in Ezra 3 in yeah. verses, um, let's see here, 12 and 13. So, oh, I'm sorry, starting in 11. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. In other words, the, that that imagery is just, there's a lot there, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's, it's very colorful imagery, but we picture these older people weeping loudly, while these younger people are shouting joyfully, and the sounds mingle together in a way that you can't you can't distinguish. And I I just would love to hear from you if you think that anything more is being said other than it's smaller, so the older people are sad. Um, I don't know that that mixing together of generations of the shout of joy and the weeping um, struck me as as we're trying to say something. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, I think it's an interesting comment on just you know any any change or or innovation or whatever else and just how two groups of people can look at it and react very strongly in opposite ways yeah <clears throat> um yeah it is it's interesting you know i think that i think that part of what's trying to be said and we we've addressed this a few times over the last few weeks is like 
yeah, they're back. Yeah, they're rebuilding the city and the temple, but like it is not it is the, not the same. same. And there is a there is a true sense in which the exile does not is not actually over, you know. Yeah, the 70 years are ended and everything else, but like it it's not where nothing is back, you know, where it was. And so I think that I mean, what a I mean, in some ways just what a picture of the life of faith itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like okay, there are true things to rejoice about. But sometimes those very things are also mixed with sadness because, you know, the 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 ultimate fulfillment is always not here. Yes. <laughs> you know, that we've been waiting and we've been waiting and we've been waiting. You know, and you think about, yeah, I mean, I think you think about that with our lives of like there's real ways that we see the Lord intervene and come through and, and uh, save people either literally, you know, from disease or disaster or whatever else than also uh you know they're saved because they come to faith in jesus but then all that is still mixed in with the fact that we're we're still waiting you know for the lord's return and we've been waiting now longer than any of our previous ancestors in faith waited which is a very sobering thought (laughs) (laughs) for me at least i get kind of bummed out when i sit and think about that for too long i don't know what that means but it's sad (laughs) um and so yeah i don't know i don't know if i if i I guess I think that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> well, I think he's, I think he's, I think I agree. He's communicating, I think, beautifully that the, God's people are obeying him again. Mm-hmm. They're doing the things they're supposed to do. And the weeping as the, the permanent consequences are being realized. Not only has it been a loss of life, not only has it been a loss of time, an exile, in the rebuilding that they're doing, the greatness of Solomon's temple, which was, I mean, I imagine just shockingly beautiful and the largest structure most people who went to it ever saw. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at the foundations for the new temple and they realize the difference. And and we're being told we are glad that God's people are are have repented and are doing what they're supposed to do. But do not forget that sin has consequence and those consequences in this case will be forever. You know, the, there will never be a return to what it was supposed to become at the, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I just think Ezra does that beautifully. Um, no one could distinguish the sound of shouts for joy. And, and that, I yeah. mean, somebody did because they wrote it down, but yeah. Well, right. Poetic. You're being <laughs> no, poetic. I know. I know. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Um, going back, jumping back to Ezra chapter one, why can you just give us some historical background on like why did Cyrus do this at all? Like why were the Jewish people allowed oh, yeah. to return to Judah? What was his I mean when we know that the Lord moved his heart, Chronicles tells us this, Isaiah prophesied about it. So yes, that's part of it. But why did Cyrus think he was doing what he was doing? So Cyrus is like the the great nephew of Nebuchadnezzar and he his conquering was interesting because he as a historical figure, was just incredibly popular with his people. He was a very pragmatic ruler, but there are multiple times where, like, forces will march out against Cyrus and they will turn and be on his side because they wanted to be ruled by him and not the king they were actually (laughs) serving. And so, I mean, that happens more than once. So Cyrus is an incredibly popular king. And he found ways, he found that it was much easier to rule a happy people than Mm. an angry one. And so one of the things that had been a character of Assyria that Babylon did, but to a lesser extent, was they ruled through fear and force, right? And so Assyria especially was just like the way they stayed in power was everyone was terrified to rebel because of the consequences. Babylon, we see what happened if you rebelled against Babylon. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar came down personally to destroy Jerusalem. 
Well, what Cyrus did that was brilliant to demoralize the Babylonian forces is he declared himself the son of Marduk. Mm-hmm. And Who's the patron god of Babylon. Uh-huh. And then the walls of Babylon were supposed to be impenetrable. And Cyrus, he actually was, there's a, a river that flowed into Babylon. And what he did is he actually put up, um, he dug trenches along it in the middle of the night and then opened them all at the same time so that the river would run half at half height or mm-hmm. less. And then his troops just walked right into Babylon and took over. And so there's this, this, I don't know, this, this feeling around Cyrus about how he's just unstoppable. He's incredible, but he's also kind and generous. Mm-hmm. And so the Jews are not the only ones that he gave this kind of religious dispensation to. He did mm-hmm. this to his empire as a whole, because again, he realized as unpopular as Babylon was because of their forcing religious restrictions on people, he could take, he could flip that mm-hmm. and have willing peoples <clears throat> that will serve him without, without a fight. And so this is one of the effects of that. The mm-hmm. Jews get to go home from exile. He doesn't want to have to feed them in his capital city. Right. He doesn't want to have to take care of them. He can send them to do that themselves in their homeland, and they'll be happy with him because of it. Mm-hmm. And that all makes sense to me. Well, yeah. And, yeah, no, that's all good. Thank you for that. And I think even just with the kind of the honor-shame mm-hmm. uh, idea of like that they, I mean, they, they're they obligated to Cyrus now in a way that they weren't. Yeah. You know, to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, we even read that every he time he's talked them, about. You know, every time and he's it's here about, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, his decree is is part of the word of God. You know, just like, so go back. May may Yahweh be with his people who do that. And then you'll pay your taxes on time. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and they did. I mean, Judah, the Persian the Persian period seems to have been, I mean, they were still under a foreign, a foreign uh, empire. But, I mean, it was not a bad time in Judea, honestly, no. because they, I mean, the Persians were, seems like they were pretty tolerant, wise rulers, generally speaking. I mean, when we get to Esther, you know, <laughs> yes. every family has well, Xerxes and Artaxerxes bad were not. Eggs. <laughs> so the first two are Cyrus and Darius, and then after that comes Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and they are very different yeah, kinds of kings. Yeah, very, very, very different. But it, it just, generally speaking, I mean, the Persian Empire seems to have been pretty stable and... and uh, and tolerant and you know let you let the judeans kind of get on with more or less whatever they wanted to do and we'll read that as we get further into ezra even when some of the other governors roundabout complain about what the judeans are doing and the persians are like yeah. eh. well and if you remember all the way back to habakkuk when habakkuk this prophet is crying out about the the lack of following the law and his own people and God says, I'm going to bring Babylon to take care of all this. And Habakkuk says, how could you do that? And he says, well, don't worry. I'm going to judge Babylon too. Right. <laughs> and so Babylon as an empire lasted, I mean, it might have been less than a century. Yeah, it was um, very brief. Very brief. Nebuchadnezzar serves 30 some years as emperor. And he is most of the time that Babylon was an empire. Yeah. And it's this it's this flash in a pan mm-hmm. moment in history where God uses this empire, he raises it up and gives them power to do all this judgment around. And then because they're also evil, judges them. And what they're followed by is much more consistent with the rest of world history. It's a weird thing, mm-hmm. historically, that Babylon was able to do. Yeah, kind of a fluke. Yeah, I think because they were helped by Yahweh. Did you have another Ezra thought? No, I'm waiting for you to tell me oh. your uh, your Ezra's a bad guy story. <laughs> well, like thoughts. We haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. So I think it's interesting... And part of this, like, yes, we're back. Things are being fulfilled, but there's still a lot of sadness. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. I just wanted to point it out that in Ezra chapter 2, when they're talking about the Levites and the temple servants that are back, that it just references that there were some 
descendants who returned who knew that they were part of Levitical families, you know, temple servant clans, but the records were gone and they couldn't prove it. Mm -hmm. And so then they weren't allowed to do, you know, what they felt like they had a a family right to do, which I think is just kind of, it's just, it's just sad. (laughs) That is very sad. You know, sad. and, And I think again, just, just gives us perspective of like, you know, so much was lost when Jerusalem was destroyed, you know, including the library that presumably was at the temple, you know, and we don't really get direct references to that as far as I know, but I mean, we know that, you know, scrolls, those things were hard and expensive to produce. So you didn't have a ton of them. The king probably had a collection and then the temple had a collection. Both of those were mostly destroyed. I mean, we have sitting in front of us, you know, potentially almost all of the surviving documents Mm -hmm. from, from what was left, which is just, very sad again just interesting to think about of, of what existed you know and when the bible refers because and i think we've we've pointed this out as we've encountered it i mean a couple of times joshua and kings and things they refer to other books that don't exist anymore and i think it's because they were destroyed in the, in the destruction of jerusalem yes um and uh yeah so anyway so that was just interesting i was also struck by there's a very brief it's not really well i guess it's sort of a genealogy here at the end of chapter two are you going to mention what uh, i was going to mention go ahead what were you going to say? Are you going to talk about the Urim and Thummim? Oh, I was going to, but I was going to skip it. Okay. No, but that's what fine. What were you going to say? Well, I don't think we need to talk about it, but oh. that's why I skipped it too. <laughs> well, it's just interesting of like the Urim and Thummim, because they never returned. And it's just interesting, like what, until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim, does that mean that they needed a qualified priest or that they needed someone to make whatever those objects were again, or both? I think it was so that... Because this is the last mention of them, I think, yes. isn't it? Yeah. They're the way... Because they never come again. Right. They're not ever part of the They're priestly. the way of telling the uh, what the will of God is, yeah. right? And, and so, something like dice or colored discs or... Probably colored rocks, yeah, a black and a white exactly. rock. Um, that's my suspicion anyway. But the, the they're brought up here, I think, is an interesting thing just because... At the time, that was... I mean, they were still in the, the knowledge of the people. Like, it was still part of the legend of of what priests are supposed to do. Yeah. We don't have any indication that they had them in exile. It's right. the idea is they're going to get home and find them and use them again, I think. And they're just gone. And they're just gone. I mean, again, I think one of the things that was lost, you just imagine this incredibly valuable piece of Israelite worship and some Babylonian soldier probably was just like, Oh, look, a colored rock. I'll take this home to my child and they'll love it. Yeah. I mean, it's just very sad. I mean, that or, yeah, I mean, it just it got smashed or it got, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know what, I don't know what the feeling is that I'm feeling, <laughs> but like the loss of, of yeah. all of that, you know, it's, it's just very striking. Um, no, what I was going to say is, so in verse 64, it says the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers, and then they had a bunch of animals. And uh, I was just struck, because I know we said earlier that the number of people that were actually taken into exile was not that many. Mm-hmm. Like, it was six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people, maybe, as like, far as we can tell. What did the Israelites do the last time they were... No, I know, it's, but it's, yeah. just, it's, a, it's an exodus, I think, mm-hmm. uh, connection. A huge growing. And even just a throwback to, I think, Genesis 1, right? Be fruitful and multiply. It's like that God multiplied them. You know, let's say there were 5,000 people taken into exile. I mean, that's, that's eight a lot times. Of yeah. You know, and just to think, 
especially if it was only 40 years, like that almost beggars, like that's a miraculous birth rate is what that is. <laughs> and I'm not doubting it, but just, I just feel like we see numbers like that and our eyes glaze over and we want to move along. But it's like, no, it's no, slow down growth. and think about this. Yeah. I mean, that is a, it's not a huge number of people in terms of our world where there's billions of people running around. But I mean, in, in the ancient world for that span of time, and again, the circumstances that they were in, that's a, that's a miracle. It's yeah. a miracle. Um, let's Should see here. We go to Ezekiel or Daniel next? Oh, I had one more. No, no, no. no. This is my first Ezra's a villain. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you implied I'd have to wait till next week. Villain is too strong of a word. So chapter four, I think, is very curious to me. And I want your insight on what's going on. I'll read it just in its entirety. It's only six verses. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, why are they adversaries? We don't know yet. They haven't done anything. They're just labeled that immediately. That's interesting to me. Heard that they returned to exiles, were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel, the governor, and the heads of father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So these would be transplants descendants of the people that the assyrians moved in Mm -hmm. who had been worshiping according to them had been worshiping yahweh and also potentially what would one day be the samaritans i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's the stock that the samaritans came from but zerubbabel jeshua and the rest of the heads of father's houses in israel said to them you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our god but we alone will build to the lord the god of israel's king cyrus the king of persia has commanded us Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, Darius, king of Persia. Why were they not allowed to be a part of rebuilding the temple? So one of the things that they are criticized by in our reading is that they allowed people who were not um, from the the Levites and mm. the designated people to do temple work, that is a part of what the judgment was, and the return from exile. I think. I mean, if you imagine being them, they've been reading Ezekiel's prophecies. They know that things have gone badly in the land since they left. Right. <clears throat> they they see the release by Cyrus as a um, a gift from God, and they come down to rebuild the temple. And here come all these foreigners saying, we want to be part of this. Well, in Israel's past, collusion with foreigners had not been good for them. Yahweh, I mean, continually they they fall into idolatry and, and get into trouble. Now, these people say we are also Yahweh worshipers, but I don't think that we're led to believe, or I wasn't led to believe, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that they are pure Yahweh followers. Like they worship Yahweh and no one else. I feel like they're likely Yahweh followers in the same way that the Jews were before the exile. They worship Yahweh and Yahweh plus. I mean, because they're there. It'd be very strange if all the peoples in the absence of any kind of faithful Israel had become faithful followers of Yahweh. I mean, it's possible. I just I have never I've never made that assumption. And that's interesting. Well, because one of the things that I've been learning, and I don't know, I mean, I'm with you in the same boat that Ezra and Nehemiah, I mean, I've read them, you know, but my depth knowledge is is much patchier. But one of the things I've been been learning about in the last year or two, and there's much more to to learn, 
you know, when it says, because it uses the phrase, the people of the land in verse four, you know, and so it's like, all right, well, who is that? Who are those people? And as we go in Ezra, I encourage all of you to be watching for that phrase, the people of the land, because I think it's actually ambiguous that sometimes it might be descendants of these transplants, Gentile transplants from the Assyrians, but often it's actually the poor Judeans who were left behind. Hmm. And the opposition between the elites coming back and saying, nope, everybody shut up, we're going to do this now. And the people who were left, you know, the poor ones, it's like, huh, that's... There's a lot going on there, and I don't, again, I'm not, I'm not, like I said, there's a lot more that I still would want to learn, but I think that the dynamic there is actually much more complex, you know, and I, and, and I see what you're saying, Clayton, because Ezekiel, ta- in our Ezekiel readings, he talks about, that's where it says, you let these people do mm-hmm. Levitical things and all these things, and that's part of the judgment, and, you know, and so I get that part of it, but also, I mean, we're given no indication that these people are idolaters. I mean, that's an assumption. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad assumption, just that it's not stated that way, you know, and even, and I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick a fight with Ezra, <laughs> but just the immediate assumption now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, and it's like, well, but this is the first time these people have been mentioned we only know they're adversaries because you tell them no, and then they and then they become adversaries. We do get a clue in Second Kings, so I just looked it up as we as we were talking. Second Kings seventeen thirty four, referencing the the transplants says, mm. "To this day, they do according to their former former manner. They do not fear the Lord." In other words, they've 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 done Yahweh worship in connection and, uh, with things. their yeah. now this is after that right so ezra is being right. written after kings was written and so right. change could have happened yeah because i think that ezra especially because nehemiah well nehemiah faces opposition as well but you know as well as we read ezra i think that there is a there's a real tension about who is the people of god who gets to be included in the family, you know, and who, and we know from previously in the Old Testament, it's like, okay, so all of Israel is God's family, but only the Levites can minister at the temple. And of the Levites, only Aaron's family can serve as, as priests. And that's even been narrowed even further at this point that now it's Zadok, you know, who's one of Aaron's great, I don't know how many great grandsons, you know? So, I mean, it's just, so that is present that it's like, all right, there's, there is a tension there of like, yes, we're all included, but, there's also this this kind of narrow uh, calling or, or whatever you want to call that. But yeah, and so I just, it's interesting, you know, sitting Ezra and Ruth and Jesus at a table, hmm. I think would be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> sure, because, I mean, Ruth Ruth gives the the problem to this kind of yes, ethnic purity. Yes, it does, yeah. And almost, diam- and, I, and I'm not saying, so the Bible contradicts itself, I just... I feel like when we run across, you know, ben, this podcast is called Ben and Clayton to Bible. So it's like when you run across something like this, you know, and we've we've seen over and over again that so often the Bible does not just come out and tell you what you're supposed to think. You know, you're supposed to meditate on it, think about it, ask questions, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the Holy Spirit uses all that. And so I just wonder if, again, you know, not reading Ezra is just a flat uh Oh, good. You know, Ezra the priest came and he's great. <laughs> just like, mm, again, we're all, we all have good and evil running in us. I'm not condemning Ezra. I think he was a good man and we'll meet him someday and he can explain himself. <laughs> but just that I think there's actually much more running under the hood here yeah. than we may 
than we would see from a from a surface reading. And so as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, I just want to encourage everybody and us to to be watching, you know, mm-hmm. for that because I think that there are clues that and and it all goes back to what we've already said. I mean, the exile quote unquote ends, but it doesn't really ever end, <laughs> you know, until Jesus comes, you know. And yeah. so a lot of what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah is teeing up the social and regional tensions and issues that Jesus himself will be dealing with. I mean, these, like I said, these people are probably the Samaritans or early, an early version of what would come to be called the Samaritans. You know, so you think about how deep the hatred and the grudge goes between the Southerners, the Judeans, and these people, these people who live in the middle of the country, but have been told for, at that point, 700 years that they don't belong there and that they have no share in the worship of Yahweh. I mean, that puts a whole new... Oh, yeah color on jesus's conversation with the samaritan woman you know and him telling her i'm almost i'm gonna start tearing up (laughs) i'm just like no it doesn't matter you know it the mountains don't matter anymore like the father is looking for people like you you know to worship him in the spirit and in truth i mean it's it's incredible it's incredible but so just be watching ezra's a villain that's that's the title of today's episode (laughs) so ezekiel first of all and i mentioned earlier in the podcast that i have a hard time with the, you know, step-by-step instructions or description yes, yes. of what exactly the temple is going to look like. But I I want to say that it's just so important that we not miss um, chapter 43. So a couple of things about the temple. I, I guess this is what I, this will be my first question, my first volley here. Okay. How are we supposed to read these chapters? Are these instructions uh-huh. for them to build the next temple by <laughs> yeah. or or what? Yeah, yeah. I, that was my opening question, too. That's a good question because they absolutely did not build this temple. <laughs> well, they actually can't. Like, it's right, got the river of life running yeah. through it. You know, the... So, but they didn't even try. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like, also on was, top of a high mountain. There was like, no question, you know. Well, and so I think that generally speaking, I think the church has, has had kind of two ways of thinking about that. That might ultimately be the same, but that Ezekiel's having kind of a vision of a spiritual temple, a spiritual reality that was never going to be physically built and is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. You know, Jesus mm-hmm. is obviously not a building, but he is the temple and he tells us as much himself. So, I mean, there's resonance there for us to be to be thinking about this. I know that some traditions, and I think there might even be streams within modern Judaism itself, I don't know about that, so forgive me if I'm wrong, that consider that what Ezekiel's describing is a third temple that has yet to be built. Yes. And will one day be built on the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The Temple, temple Mount, Mount, you know, in Jerusalem. I mean, we'll see. I have I'd, no... I'd be interested in figuring out how they're going to make the <laughs> well... river of life run through it, but yeah. And I, you know, because we also know from Revelation that John very specifically says that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem to come. So how all that will fit together, I don't know. We'll find out. But I would say I would read this as a spiritual, whatever that word even means, a spiritual temple, you know, that that is is Ezekiel's way or the Holy Spirit's way of, of conveying through Ezekiel to the people you know the the ideas of what what does the temple really mean what mm-hmm. is the temple really for which then i think would hopefully prepare them for the coming of yahweh himself you know in a in a human yes. tabernacle uh that you know and so i, I yeah I, th- I guess that's what i would say yeah i so in the the why why so detailed 
if it's not actually supposed to be built? Oh, I, I don't have, know. I have, oh, you have an answer? Yeah, okay, yeah, you I have, have a thought, thought about that? I don't have an answer, but I have a thought. <laughs> but the through the Middle Ages and through into even the 20th century, a lot of Christians thought that what this was was something that, like, it's a spiritual description of the church, and the church is the fulfillment of sure. this temple. Yeah. And I, I could see that. I don't buy it. Um <laughs> That there have been the church some, through Jesus, maybe, uh, you know, there have been some that that have thought this was instructions. You know, they're getting ready to return from exile and rebuild mm-hmm. the temple. It seems like that would go with. But again, it is impossible for them to do. And if they were instructions, like there's nothing about what materials to use. If you compare this with Exodus, right. that's true. Like it does not look the same. Yeah. There's a lot of numbers, but other than that, there's not, there's, it is not look, I mean, this is a prophet, not yeah. an architect. And much hay has been made with the numbers. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. But the, I think that what Ezekiel is, is being shown here is that God's care for his people in the future is in hand. And I think mm-hmm. the precision with all these instructions is, is an intentionality of like how careful and how mm-hmm. intentional God is about his future for his people. Mm-hmm. I think the river of life running in and out is a description of what God's people are going to be to the world. Mm-hmm. They're going to receive this life from heaven, and that's going to pass from them into into the rest of the world. Um, I think that the whole the spirit of the the Lord returning, um, the spirit of the Lord returning, is a description, a future description of the Holy Spirit coming, you know, upon God's people. Or you could see it as Jesus' return. Like either, I'm good with either one of those interpretations. But I think that these are, like you said, general interpretations of, or general descriptions and promises and assurances that God has not abandoned his people. And this is the kind of care they're going to have Mm -hmm. from him. But it is interesting to note that in the descriptions of Revelation about the new Jerusalem Mm -hmm. match in in several parts the descriptions of this temple. Yeah. And so when there's, while there's no temple in the new Jerusalem, mm-hmm. I mean, Ezekiel could also just be describing right. the new Jerusalem. Right. Well, and it, and yeah, it's interesting because what Ezekiel is describing is like a square, right? A perfect square structure. Whereas my understanding is the tabernacle and the temple were oblongs. They yes. were not square. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know if that means I don't know anything. if it means anything, but... But the New Jerusalem that John sees is also described, not just as a square, but as a cube. Was the, was Solomon's temple an oblong? I know the tabernacle was. Wasn't it a rectangle? I Well, okay, rectangle. But I just meant it's not, not a, a perfect square yeah. like what Ezekiel's seeing. And, and so I don't know. And the Holy of Holies maybe was. I'd have to go back and look at the measurements given. But, you know, mm-hmm. and, th- and maybe that's it. That the Ooh, whole thing is holy of holies. Yeah. You know, in Revelation, there's definitely resonances there that the whole thing is holy of holies. It's it's laid on the foundations yeah. that are the same gemstones yeah. as the high priest's Ezekiel has breastplate. Moved into a, I mean, it's it's a Ezekiel has moved into you know, apocalyptic here. This isn't prophecy in the same way some of his other parts of the Bible, his book, yeah. are prophecy. This is apocalyptic language. Yeah. If we're right, and he's not literally telling them what right. temple to build. Well, and that yeah. means that it gets weird. Apocalyptic right, right. stuff is weird. It gets very symbolic. I guess we mm-hmm. could say. Well, and I don't know, too, did Ezekiel know that a temple was being rebuilt in Jerusalem? Because he never goes back, as far as we know. He dies in Babylon. Is that right? I think Ezekiel so. Ezekiel doesn't return. Or at least we're not told that Ezekiel right. returns. He has no public career in Judah. I mean, he would be... He'd be pretty old. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I wonder, too, and this is just additionally to everything else, but just that you know, we know that Ezekiel had this vision of Yahweh getting on his heavenly chariot and joining the people more or less in exile, right? He's mobile. He's not fixed to the temple like they thought that many of the other gods were. 
And so in some ways, the spiritual temple sort of serves a similar purpose of like that the temple exists, you know, that the true temple exists in our hearts. But I mean, but really sort of, you know, there's just this idea of like anyone can access this at any time, you know, when you understand that that's what the temple, that the temple is not about itself, that the temple was always pointing towards a restoration of the Eden reality, men and women at home with God, you know, wherever they're at not in one in a particular place you know so i think again that's preparing us for jesus and and, and his teaching and, and just what he was and for us now we don't live in israel you know anywhere near the temple and yet we live life with god reconciled to god because of what jesus has done and so yeah i think all of that is bound up and we get a lot of very explicit eden imagery as well i mean the river mm-hmm. flowing out of the temple is part of that when he describes in chapter 41 let's see here uh, verses 17 and following, uh, where am I? Do, do, do. Uh, talking about the windows to the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside and on all the walls. Sorry, 18 is really when it starts. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. So it's just like this thing has cherubim and trees. Well, where have we seen cherubim and trees last? The temple. Or not the temple. Eden. You know, the Garden of Eden. So it's just this very explicit, you know, symbolism inside a symbolic temple. You know, but but we know that the tabernacle and Solomon's temple had the same symbolism. I mean, there were cherubim Mm -hmm. on top of the ark. There were cherubim statues that overshadowed the... The Holy of Holies, the the Great Curtain. You know, I mean, all of that is is all communicating this... This kind of virtual if you if we can permit that word you know a virtual eden space you yeah. know that we can't get the garden back itself but we can we can kind of have this little image of it you know to to uh to teach us and again i mean we've talked about revelation a lot it's kind of unavoidable john draws a lot from these yes. last chapters of ezekiel but that's i mean that's also present in the you know that what john sees in the end isn't just a city you know it's a garden city i mean mm-hmm. there are trees the tree of life itself is back you know in in the new jerusalem that john sees so it's yeah uh, it's a lot but it it's is a lot it's uh i think very stirring and i i think that specifically with the returning of the glory of the lord the one of my favorite stories in the new testament is one of the first stories in the new testament you could say maybe the first one chronologically it's zechariah and the you know, he's in, the, he's in the temple offering prayer. And what God's people had been doing is they'd been going through the rituals and instructions they had for temple worship, knowing that the glory of the Lord was gone mm-hmm. and had not returned. And can you imagine the, the way that these passages in Ezekiel would have immediately come to everybody's mind when this priest comes running out? having seen an angel, which is the first showing up in temple worship of Yahweh in centuries. Um, and these these angels popping up here in, in our readings now, and they'll continue. We're seeing more angels than we have mm-hmm. throughout Since the Old Genesis, Testament. Since, yeah. yeah. And so I think, that, I think that the reason for that is because something big is happening. Mm-hmm. Right at the beginning, something big was happening. Right. And here, something mm-hmm. big is getting ready to happen with the coming of Jesus and relatively soon in the story. Mm-hmm. And then we see them through the beginning of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And you just, I mean, this this passage connects my heart deeply to the beginning of the New Testament. Because I think this was so much of why Yahweh did things in the way he did them. Was he was sending a message. It was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies seen by Ezekiel. And I think that's hmm. amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Um. <clears throat> 
still in Ezekiel, but a bit of a gear shift here, right at the end of chapter 47. And so he gives this this kind of ideal, idealized depiction of the promised land and, and the tribal territories. And he says, starting in verse 21, So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. It's like, okay, square that with with what we just read in Ezra. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) Well, and I don't expect you to have an answer, just that I was struck by that. I'm just like, hmm, like there's definitely... There is a tension here, and the Bible is wanting us to grapple with it, in my opinion. I think that I think that's true. I think that the key, the way that I have always resolved this is the key is is pure Yahweh worship. And I don't mm-hmm. mean pure as in perfect. I mean yeah. Yahweh Faithful. and only Yahweh yeah. worship. Not Yahweh and Ishtar worship or whatever right. else they were doing. And And if that, I mean, Ezekiel doesn't say that. But I feel like he could count on that being an assumption. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, the, that's true. And 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 if we read Ezra and assume they were not pure Yahweh worshippers, then the tension disappears. Mm-hmm. But we are reading into the text things that are not there, and we have to acknowledge that. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, back to I mean, I, I guess again, part of what just caught me in, in Ezra four is they are, that is what they uh, they are assuming. Like the text itself doesn't tell us that they just are immediately like, no, (laughs) get away. Yeah, you're right. Okay. We have in chapter six, just one of the most incredible stories. We're in Daniel now. That's what I said. What did I say? You just didn't say where we were. So in chapter six, we have this incredible story where King Darius, if, and there's also some thought that maybe Darius was an updated name. Perhaps this is Cyrus, but it'd be weird if it was. So it's probably Darius and Daniel is just still there. Um, but Darius gets tricked by some of his satraps who are jealous of Daniel. It's interesting. This number of satraps is in the historical record. Like, I mean, it's, it's things, things that line up here. Babylon really did a good job of keeping historical records. And so they come to Darius and they say, Hey, let's, let's just worship you. And no one is allowed to worship anyone but you for a month. And Darius says, great. That sounds good to me. And Daniel then, who has so much power and authority in the kingdom and so much favor, obviously gets in trouble because he's not willing to not worship Yahweh. He has a very a very particular prayer practice of prayer three times a day to Yahweh, and he continues that despite that. And I would just love to hear from you. And then we, we get that he's thrown into a lion's den and he's protected. Um, and then we get the awful truth that afterwards Darius throws the men that had tricked him into the lion's den along with their families. But what do you think we're supposed to take from this story? Is this story just, look how faithful Daniel is? Is this story just, God will protect the faithful? Like, what do you think it's doing here? Because it takes up a lot of space. I mean, I don't know if, I mean. What... I, I don't mean those diminutively. If it, is, <laughs> it is, if it is that God will protect his people and Daniel is an incredible man of faith, those are good reasons. I'm just asking, like, as I read it, what am I supposed to take from it? You know, I, I think that Daniel in many ways, is written as a manual for how to live as a faithful Judean under foreign occupation. And it, 
you know, and we've said many times, you know, the Bible is history, but it's not their 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 priority is not just to tell us what happened. They're presenting things in order to to do something in us to form us in some way. You know, so I think that Daniel and and whoever, you know, if he himself wrote most of this or if somebody else is telling his stories after the fact, I mean, they're they're trying to instill in God's people, I think these what what the way that we need to be as we live in in foreign hostile situations, which I think in a Christian reading, I mean, we understand that we are, and we we said this already, you know, we're still waiting, you know, so we're still quote unquote to some in some way still in exile, you know, waiting for the Lord to return and and for that to for this to finally be over, you know, and I think that Daniel, the book of Daniel, had a lot of traction when the Greeks took over the region and the Israelites or the the Jewish people were under the domination of Alexander the Great's empire and then the people who ruled after him were incredibly, incredibly violent and hostile towards the Jewish faith. And I think into Jesus's day, you know, so just this idea of what is it, what does it look like to not be, to use some of the categories from Jesus's day, to not go full zealot like freedom fighter and try and violently resist because Daniel didn't do that, and Jeremiah very clearly told the people not to do that for, under the Babylonians, but also to not turn into a Sadducee where you do whatever you have to to appease your your foreign oppressors and and let go of any sense of of propriety or or whatever else. And so Daniel really does chart this middle way. I mean, he is a wisdom figure. I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago. That he's not. I'm not. I'm not denying him that the mantle of prophet, but just that the ancient Jewish ordering put Daniel with the wisdom books, not with the prophets. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, you know, that he is much more of a wisdom figure kind of in the line of Joseph, right? He's a vizier of a foreign king who is faithful to Yahweh and who is proven vindicated. And I think that's a very important piece. He's vindicated as being in the right. And then the blessings of Yahweh then are poured out on these foreign empires because of this, this figure's faithfulness. And so I think you see that with Daniel of like that the Babylonian rulers and then the Persian rulers especially are blessed. They they witness the truth of, of Daniel's faith and, and, and what he represents through these actions. And so I think it's all of that, you know, the encouragement of, you know, and, and we don't know, you know, what was life really like in Babylon itself or in Susa, the Persian capital, you know, where the Jewish people just one among many, many other people groups. I mean, Esther seems to tell us no. I mean, they were singled out. And they singled themselves out, right? I mean, that's been the Jewish people's sort of issue. Well, I don't want to say issue, but just that keeps happening throughout history yes. is that, that wherever they are in the world, all the other people know where the Jews live, you know, because they they conduct themselves differently, faithfully, you know, uh, to, to the law, to these other things. Yeah, and so I think that, that we read this the same way that our, our forebears would of just the encouragement of, you know, we live in a we live in a hostile foreign land, so to speak. This is not our home. And that we have to, there are times when we have to resist, but we have to resist, you know, in these ways that, that Daniel is at. Yes. up to and including potentially dying. I mean, Daniel didn't know he was going to be saved from the lions. He did what he did anyway. Yep. You know, where was he when Shadrach and the others were thrown in the furnace? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he was traveling or, you know, but just that, I mean, he had watched God deliver, you know, faithful, faithful Judeans before, but I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen and. And uh, yeah, so I think that that the faithfulness in the midst of hostility, you know, what is what does godly resistance look like? 
and then also again just that, that to trust god for our vindication you know um, and i think that daniel being thrown into a hole in the ground and coming out three days or however how long was it how long was he in the lion's den was it just a night i think it was just a night well, anyway, even if it was just a single night, but just the idea of going into the grave, I mean, he went into the grave. They expected to open oh, yeah. that Find up to sated bones, lions. you yeah. know. And so, again, you, th- you throw that forward into the story of Jesus, that his vindication came, but they actually killed him. <laughs> like the lions actually ate, so to speak, you know, the lions actually ate Jesus and then he still came back, you know. And so just what the degree of vindication for him and, and, and for his people you know, and Daniel's name means God is my judge, you know, or mm-hmm. God will judge me. And so I think that that is the, the through line through all of this, of just this vindication of God, that God will vindicate his people, even if they don't return home. Right. Because Daniel also, as far as we know, stays. He never returns home to Judea. Um, he dies in exile. But that doesn't mean that he's not watched over or vindicated. And so I think that, yeah, there's a great, great amount of comfort and encouragement that the Lord's people can take from that. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I mean, but there's boanthropy in our stories for this week. How can we not? There's what? Boanthropy. <laughs> That's when a person believes themselves to be a, a cow or a ox. It's a recognized psychological condition. And how often do you believe yourself to be a cow or an ox, Pastor Clayton? (laughs) Never. But Nebuchadnezzar did.